Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Josh. I'm the preaching minister here at ACC. And I would love it if you would go with me to God in prayer. God, we come to you on bended knee, praising your name, asking that you would just soften our hearts today, Lord, asking that you would open up our ears so that we could hear your word, asking that you would give us the strength we need to apply your word to our life. We thank you for the written word. We thank you for this church. We thank you for your son. We thank you for your spirit. And we pray all of these things in the name of Jesus. And the church said, all right, so we're jumping into our Selah series again. We're going through this seven-week series, and it's longer than seven weeks because I have drill weekends. It's seven preaching weeks for me on the book of Psalms. We're experiencing different genres of Psalms. We're connecting with God in the different styles of Psalms and hymns and Psalms. And, and today we're going to look at what's called a history Psalm or a salvation history Psalm. But before I do that, I want to ask you guys a question. Who has ever heard of the term watershed? Who knows what a watershed is? What, somebody just give me a real quick definition of what a watershed is. We're thinking rivers and streams and oceans, watershed. The terrain that drains into that area. Right. So a watershed is, if you can imagine, if you zoomed out and you had a, a view of the United States, Right? It's, you've got all of these rivers, all of these places where water can go in the U.S. And I want you to think about where that water ends up, ultimately. Right there, right there, yeah. In fact, ooh, I, let's see if technology will let me do this. Hold on. I want to see if this works. You can put water, water ends, oh man, it didn't work. I drew it in the right spot, I promise. Water will go there, water will go here, water will go here. Yep, see the, it's in the right spot on my head. But you get the idea, right? There's multiple places where water can end up in the country. And it's all determined on when that raindrop comes from the sky, where exactly does it fall? So like if I were gonna take a line here, there's a big line right down the middle of the U.S. called Continental Divide, right? Water that falls on this side is going to go into this ocean. Water that falls on this side is going to go into this ocean. You can, do, you can draw multiple lines. There's a mountain range that runs like this, and so water that falls on one side or the other is going to go. You understand this. And what's fascinating is when we think about watersheds, that's what a watershed is. It's the line at which once you cross that line, the water is destined to go to a certain place. We have a term in our lives that we call watershed moments. Watershed moments in our life are those times in which once you cross that line, once you cross that moment, everything is different. It's this idea that you crossed over the continental divide. And you've gone into this new era, this new point in your life. And that's kind of what Psalm 106, which is what we're going to be reading today, is about. 
about watershed moments in the nation of Israel. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to read along with me in Psalm 106. I also encourage you, if you're comfortable, to just close your eyes and exhibit a posture of prayer and relationship with God and just experience this psalm as I read it, whatever makes you most comfortable. But I want to read Psalm 106. Psalm 106 says, Praise the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Who can proclaim the mighty acts of the Lord or fully declare his praise? Blessed are those who act justly, who always do what is right. Remember me, Lord, when you show your favor to your people. Come to my aid when you save them, that I may enjoy the prosperity of your chosen ones, that I may share in the joy of your nation and join your inheritance in giving praise. We have sinned. Even as our ancestors did, we have done wrong and acted wickedly. When our ancestors were in Egypt, they gave no thought to your miracles. They did not remember your many kindnesses, and they rebelled by the sea, the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his name's sake to make his mighty power known. He rebuked the Red Sea and dried it up. He led them through the depths as through a desert. He saved them from the hand of the foe, from the hand of the enemy. He redeemed them. The waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them survived. Then they believed his promises and sang his praise. But soon they forgot what he had done and did not wait for his plan to unfold. In the de desert they gave into their craving. In the wilderness they put God to the test. So he gave them what they asked for, but sent a wasting disease among them. In the camp they grew envious of Moses and Aaron, who was consecrated of the Lord. The earth opened up and swallowed Dathan. It buried the company of Abraham. Fire blazed among their followers. A flame consumed the wicked. At Horeb, they made a calf and worshipped an idol cast from metal. They exchanged their glorious God for an image of a bull which eats grass. They forgot the God who saved them, who had done great things in Egypt. Miracles in the land of Ham. And awesome deeds by the Red Sea. So he said he would destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to keep his wrath from destroying them. Then they despised the pleasant land. They did not believe his promise. They grumbled in their tents and did not obey the Lord. So he swore to them with uplifted hand that he would make them fall in the wilderness, make their descendants fall among the nations and scatter them throughout the lands. They yoked themselves with Baal of Peor and ate sacrifices to lifeless gods. They aroused the Lord's anger by their wicked deeds, and a plague broke out among them. But Phinehas stood up and intervened, and the plague was checked. This was credited to him as righteousness for endless generations to come. By the waters of Meribah they angered the Lord, and trouble came to Moses because of them. For they rebelled against the Spirit of God, and rash words came from Moses' lips. They did not destroy the peoples, as the Lord commanded them, but they mingled with the nations and adopted their customs. They worshipped their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to false gods. They shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was desecrated by their blood. They defiled themselves by what they did. 
By their deeds, they prostituted themselves. Therefore, the Lord was angry with his people and abhorred his inheritance. He gave them into the hands of the nations, and their foes ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them and subjected them to their power. Many times he delivered them, but they were bent on rebellion, and they wasted away in their sin. Yet he took note of their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake he remembered his covenant, and out of his great love he relented. He caused all who held them captive to show them mercy. Save us, Lord our God, and gather us from the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. So this is a, this is a history psalm. Psalm 106 is describing a history of the nation of Israel. Verse 47, actually, is is instrumental in understanding this, where he says, Save us, Lord our God, and gather us from the nations. It helps if we understand a little bit of the background of the history of Israel. We have to know our Old Testament a little bit. And if you don't, that's okay, because we're going to kind of walk through it together. But one of the major watershed moments in the nation of Israel was toward the end of the nation, God allowed the king of Babylon to come in and ransack the city of Jerusalem and haul all of the Israelites off into captivity. It was in 597 B.C. That 597 B.C. for the nation of Israel would be like December 7th, 1941 for us. Or, or September 11th, 2001. It was a key pinnacle moment. It was a watershed moment, a tipping point in the history of Israel. So the Israelites are in Babylon. They're in captivity. They've lost their homes. They've lost their livelihoods. They've been snatched up and sent over 600 miles away, which in the year 597 BC, 600 miles away, you might as well be on another planet. And that's when this psalm was written. That's the context of this psalm. And so the psalmist starts out in in verse 1. He says, praise the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. In a lot of ways, this is a a praise psalm. But then as it goes on, it's a lot more like a lament psalm. It's a call for salvation. But, but really what, what, this, what this psalm is, is it's a reflection on the past. It's a reflection on what has happened to get us to this point. Like I'm that drop of water and I'm at this point in the ocean and I'm going back along the river and trying to figure out what went wrong that I ended up here instead of here. In verse 6, he hits the nail right on the head. Verse 6 says, We have sinned, even as our ancestors did. We have done wrong and acted wickedly. Notice he says we. It doesn't say they. It doesn't say you. He says we have sinned, and that is why we are in this place. This is not not an exercise in finger-pointing. This is an exercise in humility and 
It's, it's a corporate recognition of sin. Think about, think about the last time you prayed to God and asked forgiveness for something that somebody else has done. That's, that's odd to us, but that's exactly what the psalmist is doing. See, we, we live in this culture of individualism, but in the Bible, in the Old Testament and the New, is there's this idea that we rise together and we fall together. My sins and your sins and the nation's sins collectively are all punished by God, and there's this very united community where I'm going to take on and I'm going to say, yeah, we corporately have sinned. And then so, so the psalmist is identifying himself with the sins of the nation of Israel. And then he goes back to identify these watershed moments, these points along the road that led to this point. He says, when our ancestors were in Egypt, they gave no thought to your miracles. They didn't remember your kindness. They rebelled at the sea. So this is from the book of Exodus. We sang the song, the horse and rider fell into the sea. And the sin that the psalmist is pointing out here, when you really think of it in the grand scheme of things, is a very benign sin. The sin that he's pointing out is this. The nation of Israel has been delivered. They're pinned up against the Red Sea. They see a massive force of armies and chariots down the hill, and they get a little bit scared. And they don't trust God in that moment. Like I'm not, I'm not saying that's a good thing to not trust God, but what I'm saying is, on the grand scheme of things, that's a rather benign sin. To have a moment of doubt, to have a moment where you're lacking faith in God, and to get a little bit scared. So the psalmist goes through and, and he describes this. They rebelled at the sea. They didn't trust God, yet he saved them for his name's sake. So despite their unwillingness to trust him, he delivered them. But it goes on. He says, in the desert, they gave in to their own craving. This is verse 14. In the wilderness, they put God to test. So he gave them what they asked for, but sent a wasting disease among them. So this is from, this is from the book of Numbers, where the Israelites are getting fed this miraculous bread from heaven, this manna, but they're, they're not content. They're not content with what God is giving them, so they want more. They want meat. Which again is, I think in the grand scheme of things, benign, but you can see how this progression of sin is advancing. First it starts with an unwillingness to trust. Then it progresses to an unwillingness to be content with what God has provided. The sin is ratcheting up little by little. So God sends them meat. He gives them over to what they desire, but they end up suffering a plague because of it. They end up getting sick because of all the meat that they gorge themselves on. God says, you, 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 don't, you don't like what I'm giving you? I'll give you meat. I'll give you what you ask for. And it comes around to bite them. Their fear and unwillingness to trust God progressed and advanced into ingratitude. Verse 16, it says, In the camp they grew envious of Moses and Aaron, who was consecrated to the Lord. The earth opened up and swallowed Dathan. It buried the company of Abraham. 
Again, this ratcheting of sin. So what started out was fear and an unwillingness to trust God in the face of all of these chariots turned into ingratitude. And what, what was ingratitude now becomes envy to greed. You can see this compounding interest of sin where one thing leads to another and it keeps getting bigger and bigger like this snowball, this sin snowball rolling downhill. And you know, I bet in, the, in those moments in those individual watershed moments of sin, I bet you most of the Israelites felt justified. I bet they felt like the sin they were committing, the envy, the greed, the ingratitude, the unwillingness to trust God, I bet they were justified. They were probably like, who the heck is this Moses guy? Why does he get all the authority? What's so special about him? And I bet in that moment when God punished the Israelites... There had to have been a few of them who were thinking to themselves, like, what's the big deal? Why are we opening up cracks of the earth and swallowing people whole just because I got a little bit jealous? Is that, that seems like harsh, doesn't it? So here's the problem. When we give in to little temptations, when we give in to little sins, we are seeing the tree. God is looking at the big picture and seeing the entire watershed. He knows where those divides are. He knows for the nation of Israel that this little sin that grows into this slightly bigger sin and bigger and bigger, he sees where that snowball is heading. And so God is punishing them because he allows them to choose. But he desperately is trying to punish them and persuade them to get back on this side of the mountain because you don't want to go there. Verse 19, at Horeb they made a calf and worshipped an idol cast from metal. Fear, a lack of trust, ingratitude, envy, and greed is now leading to a full-on rejection of their God. A rejection of the God who delivered them out of Egypt. Full-on idolatry. It's this compounding interest on sin. And I love, I want to point out in verse, uh, verse 23. It says, so God, so he, God, said he would destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to keep his wrath from destroying them. Moses stood in the breach. That's a, if you're not aware, that's a military metaphor. Standing in the breach paints this picture of you're in a walled city or you're in a walled castle and there's one entry point and the enemies are seizing and surging the castle. And the breach is that point, that, that choke point right at the gate. That's the only way they can come in. If they need to come in to storm the castle, they've got to come right through that point. And so the language here is describing Moses holding back the punishment on the nation of Israel by standing in the doorway and, and basically saying, God, punish me first. I will take the brunt of it. Please do not invoke your wrath on the people. That's what this standing in the breach 
metaphor shows us. It's going to be important. So God relents. God says, I will give you mercy. I will give you grace. I will give you another chance. He gives them the land. He gives them the nation of Israel. And it says that they despised the pleasant land. This sin snowball is getting out of control. Fear and a lack of trust and ingratitude and envy and greed and idolatry is now leading to an all-out, what was the word? Despising of the good things God gives you. How do you get to the point where you despise God's gifts? We're getting on a whole other level here. So God punished them again. He says, I'm not going to give it to you. You don't like the land? Okay. All of, your, all of this generation is going to die and your kids are going to inherit it. If that's how you really feel. He, he's handing them over to their sin. He's giving them what they ask for. Like there's, this is a silly example, but there's times where I'll buy my kids ice cream. And then they'll be like, I don't, I don't like chocolate. I want vanilla instead. You know what I don't do? I don't go back and get them vanilla ice cream. I take that chocolate ice cream cone and I go, cool, then you don't have to eat it. And I eat that chocolate ice cream cone. They turn around real quick, by the way. They start liking chocolate ice cream real quick. That's what God did there. He turned them over and said, okay, if this is what you want, you want meat, you don't like the land, fine. I'll give you what you want. See how you like it. But it didn't stop. The sin snowball kept rolling and rolling and rolling. And every time, again and again, they rebelled against God. They disobeyed against God. God punishes them. They disobey again. He delivers them. He punishes them over and over this cycle. And each time, it gets worse and worse and worse and bigger and bigger and bigger. And you get to the ultimate watershed moment in verse 37. It says, they sacrificed their sons and their daughters to false gods. They shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was desecrated by their blood. In case you didn't hear that, they sacrificed their own sons and daughters to the lowercase g god of the Canaanites. I honestly have a hard time understanding how a person gets to that point. It's hard for me to wrap my mind around. Like any time if I watch the news and I see some horrific event. Right? Just, just last week in Gehring, I don't know if you've been following it or not, but there was, a, there was a gentleman who ended up in a hostage situation with the police. He was speeding through town. He... Uh, had warrants, and so when they tried to pull him over for a traffic stop, he ran. He crashed his car into somebody's house. He fired shots at the police right by the high school. He took hostages. He shut down the entire city for a while. He shut down all the schools for a day and then barricaded himself inside this house with three hostages for 24 hours right by the school. They had to lock everything down. The police had to work these extensive shifts. They brought in agents from the FBI. Like, it was a big deal. And, it, and stuff like that always makes me think, like, how do you get to that moment where that seems like the right course of action? 
How does a person get to that point? And, and I had the realization through reading this psalm and through studying God's word that you don't just get to that moment overnight. Like people don't just wake up one day and decide, you know what would be a good idea? I think I want to get in a shootout with the police. That sounds like a good change of pace today. No, the Israelites didn't just wake up one morning and decide that child sacrifice just sounded like a good change of pace for the day. That's not, that's not how that works. James, James chapter 1 says each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when it is full grown, it gives birth to death. See this growth. The little sins that we give into have the potential to grow bigger and bigger. And, and my goal in all this is not to scare anyone or shame anyone or make you think that um, you know, these little sins are just, you're going to ultimately lead straight to hell. That's not what that is. Let's, let's, let's think about this. Does every single little sin we give into ultimately lead to egregious sins? No. I don't think so. But I will say that virtually every egregious sin started out as something small. And so the point of this exercise of this psalm is to zoom back and to see the entire watershed and see you're at this huge moment that could have been stopped way back here. Who, who pulls weeds in their garden? Yeah. When's, when's the best time to pull weeds? Is it when they're this big or when they're this big? When they're this big, when, when they're here is when you want to get them, right? If you wait until they're big enough that you could hang a tire swing from them, then it's already too late. You're, you're past that point. Which, on a complete side note, if we can learn how to get kosher weeds tall enough to actually use them, like for lumber or something, million dollar idea, just saying. And the terrifying, terrifying part of all of this and this is what takes some really deep reflection is that you and I are just as capable of rolling that snowball down the hill as they were. We're not different. We don't read this psalm and look back at the Israelites and say, man, those guys were a bunch of dummies. Good thing I'm way better and way more righteous and way smarter than they are. No. We, we look at our sins, we look at the little sins in our life, and we do exactly what they probably did. It's not that big of a deal. Just this little thing. It's not like it's going to snowball out of control and turn into child sacrifice or anything. God knows. God sees the big picture of everything. He sees where the snowball's heading. And so in God's eyes, those little sins, that lack of trust, that lack of gratitude, God sees this train is headed down the wrong track. My, my mother-in-law has a saying that she likes to say. She says, everything in your life is just a series of choices. Like if you boiled everything down, every single moment of your life is just a choice. This or this. 
Every second of the day, every breath you breathe, you're on a road and, you're, and your decisions are, should I go down this road or that road? It's a good way to think about it. And we don't always have perfect knowledge. We don't always make the right choice every single time. The Israelites didn't make the right choice a lot of times. So the point is not to choose the right road every single time with perfection. But the, the point is, as much as you can, choose the road that's leading you back to God. You will stumble. You will make the wrong choice. And then you will do a course correct and you will head back towards God. And the aggregation of your choices over the course of the entire watershed, if you make those choices toward God, will put you in a place closer to God than if you would have chosen self and greed and idolatry. We make those choices that bring us closer to God and farther from Babylon. We know how to do that. We know how to generally choose the right path, even if we don't get it right every single time. This is Romans chapter 1 says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his internal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. We can look around and know generally what God's will is and choose God. We can do that much. But the only reason any of this is possible, the only reason that any of us can choose God, the only reason that any of us can make those little steps away from Babylon and toward God is because we have Someone who stood in the breach for us. Remember that imagery of Moses standing in the breach, taking on the full brunt, offering himself up in place of the Israelites? That's what we have in Christ. This is a really fun Bible reading tool. If you, if you count the number of sins in this psalm, there's exactly seven. It's a very, very Jewish number, a very whole, complete number. It's not that way on purpose. And the Bible reading tool is anytime you see seven of something or five of something or an odd number, one of the first things you should do is you should go from the end and the beginning and count towards the middle and find what the middle one is. Because most of the time, the middle thing in that series of seven or five or nine or whatever, that middle thing is the main point. It's the main watershed point of the psalm. So when we, when we look at this psalm, we, we count forwards from the top and backwards from the bottom. We end up right in the middle. The sin number four, it's like this. It's like going up a mountain, and the peak of the mountain is the main point of the psalm, and then coming back down. And if you do that, the fourth one, the one right in the middle, is the sin of worshiping the golden calf. It's rejecting God. That's the ultimate watershed. Before the sins were benign, but then once you've rejected God, you're on your way down the other side of the mountain. But that's also the sin in the series where it talks about Moses standing in the breach. God sees what happens when you get past that point of no return. In the grand scheme of history, God sees that thing. And so, right in the middle of all of it, our God took on flesh, 
dwelt among us and stood in the breach and took the brunt of death. You're saying a lot of a lot of people think that the entire world is this battle between God and Satan. We have this idea in our head that there's this good and evil battle going on in heaven. It's kind of true, but not. Because God is so much on a level higher than the forces of evil that it's not even funny. The real battle that's going on is not between God and Satan. It's between Satan and God's creation. That is where the warfare is happening. It's between sin and us. Christ stood in the breach. Does anybody know the... The, it's a famous story of the, of the 300 Spartans. I had a movie about it a while ago. If you don't know the story, this is around 480 B.C. Persia is the world's superpower. We read this in the books of Ezra, Esther, yeah, Ezra and Nehemiah. Persia is the world's superpower. They're the ones marching across the Mediterranean, taking over everything. And in 480 B.C., Persia was on its way to conquer the islands of Greece. And all of the city-states in Greece folded. They caved. They gave in to Persia, except for two, except for Athens and Sparta. And so there's a famous story as the Persians were marching south to conquer Greece. 300 Spartan warriors met the Persians at this point along the path. Where on one side were straight cliffs into the sea, and the other side were sheer mountains. And they stood, and they were warriors, and they stood ready for battle, and they held off the Persian army. They stood in the gap and protected the rest of Greece. At one point during the battle that went on for several days, King Xerxes of Persia was informed that there's a little mountain path that goes around the other side. That's when the battle turns. So the Spartans are in the breach, and by the time they realized that they were being attacked from the front, and then all of a sudden from behind, by the time they realized that, it was too late. And so King Leonidas and his Spartans realized this, and they sent the rest of the Athenian army back to retreat, to go warn the cities, to prepare for war. And this is, this is actually from an ancient Greek historian about the battle. It says, Xerxes and his barbarians attacked. But Leonidas and his Greeks, knowing they were going to their deaths, advanced now much farther than before into the wider part of the path. In all the previous days, they had sallied out in the narrows and fought there, guarding the defensive wall. Now, however... They joined battle outside the narrows, and many of the barbarians fell. Since the Greeks knew they must die at the hands of those who had come around the mountain, they displayed the greatest strength they had against the barbarians, fighting recklessly and desperately. By this time, most of them had had their spears broken and were killing the Persians with sores. The battle went on until the men from Epialtes arrived, and when the Greeks saw that they had come, the contest turned, for they retired now to the narrow part of the way, passed behind the wall, and took their position, crowded together on the hill. So you've got to imagine all these Spartan warriors, they've got a little bit of reinforcements, and so they back up into the wall, and they're surrounded on all four sides, and they're just holding the wall. They're standing in the breach. 
It says, in that place they defended themselves with swords, if they still had them, and with hands and teeth. The barbarians buried them with missiles, some attacking from the front and throwing down the defensive wall, others surrounding them on all sides. They died. All 300 of them died, by the way. They gave just enough time to ready the armies back in Sparta and Athens to prepare for war and to save the rest of Greece. But they stood in the breach and they protected the islands. And it says there's an inscription written over these men who were buried where they fell. And the inscription says, Foreigner, go tell the Spartans that we lie here obedient to their commands. They stood in the breach and they defended the entire nation against death. And every single one of them took the brunt. And I, and I think about that and I think about Christ. And the agony that he went through. Death is coming. Persia is coming. Babylon is coming. The war is real. And Christ stood in the breach between us and death. And he gave himself for us. And then he rose again. Death has been defeated. So we can have our hope in. Will you pray with me? Father God, we thank you so much for your son. We thank you for the sacrifice and the atonement of sins that we have. God, we just, we ask that you would help us to be on your side. We ask that you would help us to fight this battle valiantly and not give in, but to stand firm. And we thank you for sending your son to stand in the gap between us and death so that we can live to fight our battle with sin another day. We pray all of these things in your son's precious name. And the church said, Amen. All right. I, I forgot to mention, would somebody go ahead and, and grab our kids um, from downstairs while I'm getting this stuff moved around?